0: I'm Jeff Cohen, Ari Shabbat is the Chief Executive Officer of Reside Admissions, a company that offers a long-term care admissions application. He's also an avid Spartan racer, having completed many obstacle races of varying distances and difficulty, and he's here today to share his story. Ari, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Great to be here with you, Jeff. I appreciate you making the time, and of course I'm going to want to talk Spartan racing and Reside Admissions, but let's start at the beginning. Tell me where you were born and raised. All
1: right, I'm a uh, born and bred Chicagoan. Um, grew up here my, uh, my whole life with a, you know, a quick escape to Israel here and there, but uh, otherwise, born and bred Chicago, still here now. And give our listeners a sense from an observance perspective, what was your family life like as a kid? So I grew up in the Orthodox community here in Chicago. Went to uh, Hebrew day school, went to yeshiva for high school, went to Israel for the uh, the year after. Had my struggles and challenges, um, and uh, and ultimately, you know, came back and uh, and now lead a fully observant life. So it's interesting. I've
0: I've interviewed many people who were born secular, and I'm always asking them, "Did you know any observant people when you were a kid?" I'm wondering, did you have friends who were not observant? What was the community like, or was it very insular that your life was basically filled with mostly observant kids?
1: Yeah, I think I think in the early stages, really young. In Hebrew day school, for the most part, you know, my friends were all Orthodox. As I started to get toward teenager, started to get involved in NCSY and be able to connect with uh, with other kids from public schools and so on and so forth, they kind of expanded the reach and start to recognize that there's there's more out there. It um, was probably closer to my teenage years than it was, you know, when I was younger.
0: And so I see this all the time with people I interview who were born secular, they somehow believe that someone who was born observant doesn't have the same questions and wonder about the lifestyle that they're leading. But I'm guessing you didn't just fly right through without ever wondering, is this the right thing for me?
1: Oh, for sure. Teenagers are teenagers, right? So there's no question that it comes with a lot of growth and a lot of changes and a lot of questions. But I think religion's often a big part of that. Um, is, is trying to get clear on why are we doing what we're doing every day and why are we doing the same thing every day and what is it that we're even connecting to and, and God is intangible and here I have all this in front of me that makes sense and here I have, I, I don't know what that is and yet I still show up every day and do it. It begs the question of who am I and what am I doing this all for? So there are, you know, clearly many that um, just look at it and say, okay, like, I'm in, like, whatever it is, I'm good. And then there are others that, uh, that push back a little or, you know, look for clarity or ask the right questions. And with, you know, the right mentors and the right leadership, those are actually quite helpful, because you actually start to get a piece and a picture of, of, of why this matters and what's important about it and, and why I'm showing up every day. And so, where were you on that spectrum? You said some people
0: just accepted, okay, this is the life I was born into, no questions asked. And some people challenge it all the way to maybe this isn't even the life for me. Where are you on that spectrum as you're yeah, an so, adolescent and teen? So, in the my
1: story is, I mean, clearly very, very comfortable in it, no worries at all, right? So, you know, went to yeshiva high school, showed up every day, didn't really live in the realm of like, I wonder ifs, went to my year in Israel. Decided to go back for for a second year and at that point my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer Um, Literally two weeks after I got there for my second year and and the whole thing fell apart, right? It was like wait a minute and then the questions that were all kind of like lingering in the background, right? They were there. They just weren't coming out. They all came out and it was like Okay, what are we doing here? What is what is going on? And I thought it was the school and I switched schools and then realized it wasn't the school, it was me. And then I left Israel and came back and struggled and looked and seeked and asked the right questions and ended up going to two more schools and just really went in this kind of exploration mode of what is this all for? What is this all about? Why am I connected to it? And, and why does it matter in my life? And, uh, and it was a big challenge. It was a big challenge to really dig in and try to find you know, some meaning behind everything that we're doing without just, okay, I accept it, um, was really looking for real answers, and, uh, and ultimately found them.
0: But you mentioned your, your mom having breast cancer. My mom went through that also, actually before I became observant. So I never had that moment of saying, you know, why would God do this to such a wonderful woman, and does that mean that I should continue to believe in this religion? Because I wasn't there yet. But you mentioned that things started to change when she got that diagnosis. Do you mean that you were starting to ask those questions about why would God do this to someone that I love, who seems like a great person, and what does this mean for my belief
1: system? Yeah, I think that's certainly a part of it. What it did for me was, I guess if there was a a cap or a a lid on my questions, it opened the lid and and it all came flying out, you know, (laughs) like the full jack-in-the-box of like all the wondering and all the I wonder ifs. And it was like, well, wait a minute, you can go do this? Well, I have a billion questions to ask. (laughs) And uh, and it kind of came out in this like 17, 18-year-old approach, which was, you know come right at you with them and whether it was uh whether it was this school or that school it didn't matter did with this rabbi or that rabbi I, i was firing questions you know left and right and the answers that were satisfactory were like okay great but what about this right and uh and ultimately you know the conclusion being that we're able to find you know the meaning and the interest in it but man it was a probably a year and a half long battle of research and trying to get clear on it and and what's funny is that ultimately it there was no like oh, that's the answer? That, <laughs> oh, thank you. Like, ultimately, obviously, it was a journey into itself and really a decision that you had to choose faith at some point and choose the recognition of what it is that you believe and what you stand for. There wasn't like, oh, thank you. That's the answer that tells me that here's God and he's right in front of me. Thank you for... right.
0: <laughs> I wonder, during that time period, you're saying about a year and a half, you're asking all these questions and seeking answers. That can be a dicey time at that age where maybe you don't keep as many of the mitzvahs, or you you question ones you're doing, why am I doing this? You give up some of them, and and you're really trying to find your footing in what's your baseline going to be going forward. So was was this point for you, was it more theoretical-type discussions with rabbis and people you could trust to try to get answers, or was it actually affecting how you were going about living an observant life day to day?
1: There's no question that I was pushing it, right? I was testing the waters as a uh, as a late teenager. Some people just push back on their parents, or they push back on school. I was pushing back on pretty much everything, and seeing what was out there, what resonated, what didn't. If I did something that you know was a little off key. How did that feel? Did I have guilty feelings? Did I have comfortable feelings? Where did I want to land? Who did I want to be? It was all part of that journey was for sure testing. But then there were other things that were 100% comfortable for me, giving back, doing chesed, those types of volunteering, they never went away because they still resonated with me right so it wasn't like take this whole thing and you know there was never <laughs> that moment but then this push-pull of like who am i in this religion where do i fit what matters in terms of ultimately deciding the uh, you know the level of observance and the connection with god in my own personal life at that time
0: so where's that point you think where you kind of ultimately regrounded and said okay i've gone through this period i've asked some tough questions. I've dabbled in some things, I've pushed some boundaries, but you know what, I'm actually good and I'm at a level that I, I think this makes sense and I can carry forward
1: without feeling this kind of angst about the whole thing. I know exactly the moment. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. So I'm, I'm I'm back in Chicago, post my second year, I come back and I, I'm pushing and I'm testing and I get a letter in the mail from Rabbi A.Y. Weinberg, who at the time was the regional director of CSY in the Midwest. And he said, hey, I, you know, we're looking for advisors. I hear you're back in Chicago. Will you, will you come be an advisor? And I'm thinking in my head, like, you don't want this guy to be an advisor. I'm in, <laughs> I'm in like full search mode. I shouldn't be advising teens, right? And ultimately, there were a couple of girls that were coming as advisors, And they were like, hey, you should come for the weekend. And I was like, oh, I get to go for a weekend, hang out with you guys? Like, Mm -hmm. all right, I'm in in for that. I don't know about Mm -hmm. these kids, and I'll pass on that. (laughs) And then because God's amazing and does his thing, they both canceled the day before the Shabbaton. And the way that I am is once I make a commitment, I've got to see it through. So I go to the, the Shabbaton anyway, and everything flipped. When I saw that there were These teenage kids from non-observant, from Hebrew day schools that were reaching for it, clawing for it, trying to overcome challenges just to try to connect to God, just to try to do a mitzvah. And it was like, whoa, maybe I'm the one that's completely missed the boat here. And I've completely taken this for granted. And I jumped two feet in um, into NCSY, um, ended up working for the organization and uh, leading the Chicago chapter for, uh, for a year and a half and really started a journey of, wait a minute, if it matters to them, maybe it should matter to me. And and maybe the big question that I asked was, you know, that, that question of like, how can I advise if I myself aren't? I went to Rabbi Weinberg, I asked him that question. Um, and he, he asked, he answered just brilliantly. He said, well, let me ask you a question. He goes, what do we do on the seventh day? I'm like, well, we don't work. We celebrate Shabbos. He goes, right. He says, what foods don't we mix? I said, milk and meat. He goes, how many times a day do we pray? I said, three. He goes, good. So do me a favor. Speak Torah, not your Torah. <laughs> and I was like, huh, that's pretty interesting. We all have our own space and our own relationship with the Torah and with God and what we do and what we struggle with, whatever it is. But if you're advising, you, you teach Torah, not your version of it. I thought it was a brilliant answer. It really resonated with me at the time. And, uh, and that, that moment really kind of changed everything. Which is like, wait a minute, I I actually can have my own place, but there's still a Torah. There's still a set. I thought that was fascinating and really shifted everything for me.
0: I'm glad you brought up NCSY. I got to speak at a Yarche Kala event in front of a a bunch of, you know, not yet observant kids. And because they found out that I was raised secular, they just kept asking me, don't you miss your secular life? Don't you miss being able to go to any restaurant? Don't you miss the friendships that you had? And, And why did you give it up. And I kept honing in on this phrase, I don't feel like I gave it up. Like I don't miss that lifestyle. I stay connected to those people. I go to lunch and dinner with them. We pick a kosher restaurant because they're, you know, they're being respectful of the situation that I'm in. But I find it interesting that they view it as giving up something. And I talked to them about you're actually moving forward to something else. So I'm wondering what your experience was as you talked to those kids in that time frame. as you had these ahas about your own life and the questions they were asking you.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a there's a bias for anything we already own, anything we already have, right? Mm-hmm. People say when you're when you're cleaning out your closet, you should say to yourself, you know, what would I pay for that now? And if it's like oh, I probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't pay anything for that, right? You chuck it, right? So the idea that like we have this bias toward what we have already, it makes sense. It makes sense. They're asking that question. It's like I'm I'm used to doing X, and now I can't do X it feels like a loss, right? And people generally, they they say, people say that people push back on change. They don't like change. No, people don't mind change. They mind loss, <laughs> right? So if in the sure. change I'm losing, then it feels like loss and I'm gonna push back again. If in the change I'm gaining and, and there's no loss, I'm in, right, who wouldn't be in? The idea that these kids or whomever may feel like they're losing something, it's a totally logical approach, but you nailed it on the head, right? When you reach the point where you recognize that it's adding to your life, it's gaining, it's growing, it's moving forward, it's advancing, you don't feel the loss of I'm giving up what I had. It's like, look at what I'm getting, look who I'm becoming, look what I get to be game over, right? Then, then it becomes a whole nother thing. And there's, you know, troves of people who have gone through that transformation that you have, Jeff, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: they would all say the same thing. And everyone I've talked to has said exactly the same thing. And even in my own choice back then where I, you know, I, I played a little for a year and a half, but I don't feel like I lost those things that I gained. It was more that I, I made a decision to add so much to my life and live with meaning.
0: So let, let's continue now with your story. You're doing the NCSY thing. You're back from Israel. So now you go on to college at this
1: point? Yeah. So I'm I'm now in college doing that. And I, I go quickly. I move fast. I was the kid that uh, my parents pushed me ahead. So I graduated high school at 17, college at 19, first master's at 21, second master's at 24, married at 21, first kid 22, four kids by 30. Whoa. Opened my first business at 27, sold it at 38. Crazy, right? So the idea that... Moving fast was always kind of in my DNA. So, coming out of that, and once I kind of latched on to NCSY, I went hard into it. First, I worked for the organization, then I got married and got on the board and ended up becoming the chairman of the Midwest and and still going as an advisor for many years, even till now. I, I got a, a, a great story where an NCSY came over to me and, and when I was like 40, and he's like, You're still coming to Shabbatones as like an advisor. <laughs> like, all the other advisors are like, 18 19, 20, and you're 40 what you, what's going on He goes, you must be the oldest advisor in ncsy history <laughs> and i and i looked at him and i was like it's actually a really good observation that's probably true and he says to me whoa that means that every shabbaton you go to you break your own record
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was like that's great <laughs> so wait though you you said you were going through school very fast but you didn't mention you know what were you studying? And what did you think you were going to be? You had this NCSY thing going, but was your career going to be in the secular world or you were thinking, I'm going to work full time in, in some community, nonprofit,
1: Jewish organization? I, I'd always seen myself being in business in some way. I was convinced that I was going to be in advertising, much more of a creative you know, idea type of guy. But I got married young, 21. Um, I was finished my, my second master's for a few years. So I asked my dad for a job. Um, he owned two nursing homes. So I ended up being an administrator for six years. Then ended up opening a long-term care pharmacy, um, which thank God we sold the CVS in, uh, in 2017. And then it went open to reside, and that's kind of what I'm doing now. But the thought that I would be in communal work was always more for me a, on a volunteer lay leader basis rather than working full-time. Although I tend to say that when I reach the point that I'm financially comfortable, then I'm gonna go back and work in, uh, in, in community work. I've been saying it forever, right? So <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> They have this obsession with it still, clearly. (laughs) And what about this
0: idea of working in healthcare, but being observant? I've interviewed folks who, where you're trying to mesh those two worlds. It can be easy. It can be hard. There can be sacrifices. So how have you found
1: meshing these two worlds, healthcare and an observant lifestyle? So typically in today's day and age, it's not hard to be orthodox and in business. It, it's really not healthcare or, or otherwise the idea that within healthcare you're running a nursing home it's a it's a 7 day business yes there are things that we need to accommodations that you need to make in order to make sure that things are covered while you're shut down for the sabbath or shut down for holidays and so on and so forth but you know really my belief is that you hire a plus talent you get out of their way um, if you build a good team you should be doing less i should be working myself out of a job Right. right? If that the more involved I am, the more we're going to fail because I should be the dumbest person in my business. <laughs> All of those approaches, um, they lend themselves well to the orthodox lifestyle and business because typically I'm trying to remove myself more and more. And now it forces me to be out, you know, at least on Saturdays and during the holidays, completely unreachable, which forces, you know, my people to step up and make decisions when I'm not around. And it lends itself well to that, that type of business approach.
0: And you said your wife came into the picture pretty young. So give us a story of how how
1: she comes in and also what was her background and how does it kind of compare to what yours was growing up? Oh, that's a great question. I married a rabbi's daughter from Toledo, Ohio, (laughs) (laughs) why? okay <laughs> <laughs> from nowhere so she Ohio. was observant <laughs> she uh she grew up observant and ended up because there was no schools in toledo she ended up coming to chicago for high school um, we didn't meet in high school we just had a friend that for many years said you know you two would be perfect together you two would be perfect together and we, we never listened never ever and then ended up being at a at a common friend's wedding and i knew she would be there i would curious who she was i didn't even know what she looked like knew nothing about her and i said to a friend i was like hey is Shoshana Garsick here? And she said, yeah. And I said, just point her out to me? He did. And I was like, wow. So I just walked right up to her and <laughs> said, hi, I'm Ari Shabbat. Nice to meet you, whatever it is. We went out that week and three months later, uh, you know, engaged and, uh, and however many months later married and the rest is kind of history. So, uh, but she definitely grew up in the observant world. My dad actually asked me, he's like... You're 21, you had no intentions of getting married and you meet this person at a wedding and like a hot minute later, you're ready to go. Like, what's going on there? And actually the answer kind of speaks to your question. I said to him, I was like, I I just don't think I'm going to find anybody better. I feel like she's going to push me as a person. She's going to push me religiously. She's going to, she's the type of person that's just going to make me better. And he's like, wow, like, what do you say to that? He's like, all right, let's, let's do this. (laughs) And the rest is kind of history.
0: And so were there conversations in terms of how you wanted to raise your family? I'm, I'm asking the question in terms of when I interview two people who were raised secular and they become observant either together or before they met, there's a lot of questions about this is what our background was. What are we going to tell our kids about what we were and what we are now? So how similar would you say you're raising your kids to what each of you experienced as, as
1: a kid yourself? I believe deeply that um, that telling our story all the way is The way to connect and the way to inspire and the way for people to recognize that you're a real human, right? You're not, you know, hiding and armoring up behind some facade that you've built. So the idea of like, you know, I spent a year and a half searching, but I don't talk about that. Mm -hmm. To me, that doesn't resonate at all because you take away from the person that you are and you take away from the story that you are that, you know, if I can openly say to somebody that I search too. It almost makes it okay that they search, and then we can have a real conversation about it. But if I'm like, "Oh, you searched," <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's hard. That, that that must have been difficult for you, right? there's there's no ability to 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 have that that authentic conversation. So, uh, my wife and I, you know, unquestionably both grew up Orthodox. I was a little bit more searching than than she was, and therefore there was a, a huge amount of stability that she brought for me, and for her, I brought a huge piece of like. This drive to push and grow and bring people in, and thank God it's been it's been amazing for us and we've had you know dozens of NCS wires of kids that have come through our home that have uh, you know found a stable place to be and search and learn and grow and uh, it's been thank God a blessing. And you said also
0: earlier about having that journey in healthcare. So let's go back to that now. I mentioned at the opening about resided missions. So you you've been a lifer in this long term care industry so how did this idea come about
1: and and what you're doing now first of all if you've never written a software do not go into writing a software because it's really hard and it takes a lot more effort than ever imagined and a lot more money too but it really has turned out to be something pretty special the story goes that my first minute in long-term care, I'm 21 years old. I go to my job. I sit down with the, the VP at the nursing home and she sits me down and she says, okay, 9.01 a.m., lesson number one, everything starts in admissions. She said, if you get it right for the person, like any customer service experience, they're going to report good back to the hospital. They're going to report good back to the physician. If you make a mistake, they'll give you a little bit more rope because you've, you've treated them well from the beginning. You made a good first impression. But if you mess it up, they will be the first ones to yell at the doctor and the first ones to yell at the hospital. And if you make the tiniest mistake, they will magnify it beyond <laughs> belief. So you have to get the admission right. And to prove her point, she put me in admissions. I spent my first year there welcoming in families, doing paperwork, all of the above. And if you ask anybody in long-term care about admissions, it's like, oh, like it's the worst. If you ever have put a family member in, it's so much paperwork and it's, it's such a pain. Um, And really kind of throughout my whole life, I've now seen long-term care through this lens of like the first impression. So even in the pharmacy that we ran, we used to give, you know, three-day supplies to every, every admission, irrespective of if we had billing information because we wanted to make a good first impression. Right. Um, and to that end, I've always was like, we gotta be able to do this better. There's gotta be a better way to do this. And uh, and it kind of hit me that uh, there is a better way and we therefore went and we built Reside, which is essentially has kind of a, a twist of like TurboTax to it, right? Your taxes are about as complex as humanly possible. Um, TurboTax asks you 25 questions and fills all your taxes out in the background. What would it look like if we gave a resident and a family 25 questions and filled all their paperwork out in the background? Very 21st century, very simple. And plus, every one of those clicks is now a data point. So the entire admissions process now becomes measurable, transparent, and therefore, family gets a great first you know first impression. Facility now has accountability and transparency. And thank God, it's been uh, it's been it's been difficult. I won't I won't. It's been four <laughs> years of. A lot of pain to get it going, but thank God we're in uh, just about 500 facilities right now in 22 states and growing. So it's uh, it's been very, very exciting. It's been fun, but not without its challenges. Software. <laughs> so So let's now turn to another side of you that I mentioned in the
0: opening. Now that I've gotten to know you a little bit, it it makes perfect sense that you're doing these Spartan races because a guy who says I do everything fast, all in, I like to be challenged, it sounds like the perfect kind of race, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with it. So give us a background on what these races are and how you got involved. So
1: Spartan Race is essentially a military obstacle course. So imagine for a minute that you're running a a marathon or half marathon or 5k only you're doing it all terrain. So you're doing it on a mountain or you're doing it in a bunch of mud or you're doing it on a trail. And then they put obstacles along the way. So you're doing a 5k in the mud with 30 obstacles. You're doing a half marathon on a mountain with 6,500 feet of elevation with 50 obstacles along the way. So it's legit and it's crazy and it's challenging and it's amazing. And, uh, the way I got into it was, um, because I do things all in. I mentioned that I had four kids by the time I was 30. So my wife and I would partake in the in the cravings thereof, and then she would have the baby lose all the weight, and I would just stack it on, right? So my my oh, my whole 20s was just getting larger and larger and larger and larger and larger, right? So uh, so I topped out at about 242, um, and I went to my doctor, and he was like, we're going to put you on Lipitor uh, the rest of your life unless you lose 5% of your weight. So I said, okay. So I, I signed up for Weight Watchers, and kind of to punish myself, I went, Every week, me, like me and twenty-seven women, um, and I sat and I listened to the you know the teacher there, and I actually learned a lot about you know food and about carbs and about you know proteins and all the different ways that it affects the body, and really started to get into it. But it wasn't enough. I lost a few pounds, but I then saw this video, and I was like, oh my gosh, for this race, and I was like, man, that is like that would get me off the couch. So I emailed <laughs> every guy that I know. And one guy responded and he's like, man, that makes my blood boil. We got to do this. And I was like, well, if you're in, I'm in. We ended up with nine guys. We went, we ran a race called Tough Mudder, ended up doing three of those um, and accidentally ended up at a Spartan race where it was only an eight mile race. And my buddy's like, hey, Tough Mudder is 12. This is child's play. It's an eight mile race. And I was like, all right, let's go do it. And like two and a half miles in, we're like dead. We're like, what is this thing? It was all terrain, (laughs) obstacles. We're like, if you fail an obstacle, you have to do 30 burpees to move on. And by the time we finished that race, it was so like, I can't believe I was capable of that. And it's that feeling that I try to capture and recapture. It's like you lean into the discomfort. You say that feels just too far away. And when you show yourself you can do it, it's like, I can do anything. And it, and it really is such a powerful feeling that, that I really became highly obsessed with it. Like I said, I go fast. And I've now done 26 races, my kids race, my wife races. Um, I've brought friends into it. And our family is like a Spartan family. Our Wi-Fi password is I am a Spartan. Anybody who comes <laughs> to my house can now get on my Wi-Fi. So it, it's, a, it's, it's deeply ingrained in, in kind of everything that we do. And that message of you are capable of so much more with the right, you know, mindset, with the right effort and the right ability to stick to it. And that's kind of like the, the, the bastion of our family that not only applies in the physical, but it also applies in the spiritual. And it became it's become a culture for us that whether you're talking about your relationship with God or whether you're talking about whether you can, you know, knock out you know, that workout, it's all the same. And Spartan has created kind of a physical manifestation for us to Train ourselves so that it appears everywhere in life.
0: Yeah, I would think some of our listeners are like, "Where do I sign up?" And other ones are like, "I don't want to do that kind of workout. I'll go on my Peloton, or you know, I'll, I'll go to the gym." So, what do you say to people who are like, "Why do I have to get dirty to get in shape?" It sounds like you you've had a different experience now that you've
1: done a bunch of these. Yeah. So I'll say clear, it's not for everyone, and that's okay. That's okay, right? We talked about that. There's a spectrum in being religious is a spectrum in how physical you want to get, how dirty you want to get, what you want to do to stay healthy. That said, God made us with a physical body and a spiritual soul, right? And our job is to take care of that body in whatever way makes sense for us. So if you have a, a tinge of extreme in you, you can go try a Spartan sprint. They're typically not horrible terrain or whatever it is. They're more than your typical Thanksgiving turkey trot 5k but they're not going to kill you. Whether it's a Spartan race and you, you're a crazy like me um, or, or it's, you know, whatever it is that fires you up and works for you. That's kind of what it's all
0: about. Very nice. Let's talk about one more side of you. I've had the privilege of interviewing both Harry Rothenberg and Saul Blinkoff on the podcast and, and having heard them and you, you have all the same kind of like high energy intensity all in. So I can see how you found each other and why you work together.
1: Tell me a little bit about the organization you work together with. So we uh, we all run trips to Israel through an organization called Momentum. And the idea being that whether you're a mom or a dad, and of course we lead the dad's trips, and there are, there are other leaders that lead the uh, the mom's trips, but the idea being that there are organizations in every one of the cities that are exposing those that may not have experience with the Jewish religion to our heritage and to the beauty of what we do. So they're local organizations. Now, if you're a local organization and you you've got you know, limited budget, and you've got your, your core group of people, the chance for you to take an incredible A-plus VIP trip to Israel is going to be pretty low, right? Mm-hmm. But if you take all those cities and you bring them together, and you bring 20 cities at the same time, that gives an ability through this organization Momentum for us to really take a trip that's, that's next level out to Israel and, and meet different people that are on similar journeys from all around the world, it's really, really very powerful. So Saul, Harry, and myself as well as Charlie Harari lead these trips so that no matter where you are, no matter where you're from, you have an ability to connect with the land of Israel, an ability to connect with the Jewish people, and an ability to connect with yourself in terms of who am I in all of that. Mm-hmm. Right? So you come there and it's not, it's not an Israel trip. It's not a tour where it's like, wow, look, there is wow, Israel's wow. But really the purpose is, is that when you walk out of there, you're a different person. So you've had it a minute to like have a Shabbat from your life and go there for a week and disconnect and and start to see who I am in all this big picture and walk away with some meaning around your life and around the fact that you're Jewish and what you're going to bring home as a dad and who you're going to be as a husband and at work. And it, it really is kind of changing the person from the inside out through the lens of Israel and Judaism. So I'm
0: wondering the kind of person who would want to go on a trip like this. So they are they... Predominantly secular Jewish people, but they're seeking in some way. Why would somebody come to this organization?
1: I think that many people today, especially, we're showing up with with a life that's just missing a piece, right? It's like go to work, come home, go to work, come home, have our kid, yeah, we do on the weekends, and it's just missing that like X factor, and you're wondering what it is, and then you've got this this piece which is like you know, well, I know I'm Jewish, but What is that? Like, what does that mean to me? So, it is that person who's looking for kind of an answer to that question, number one, but also somebody who who wants more from their life, who wants to feel like, A, I'm part of something, but B, I I need that growth, that something. And it doesn't have to be somebody who's firing out of the gates like me. It's somebody who's perfectly quiet in the background, who just has a wondering in the background that says, hey, you know what? There's got to be more than this, right? There's got to be people come on the men's trip and they go through the experience and each person at their own thing that they personally connect with at some point they feel something and they're like my god i feel alive and they go home feeling like they could take on the world and that there's purpose and there's meaning and they come back as better dads better husbands better people and it's it really is super powerful i still
0: think though if i was on that trip before i became observant and i was looking at you and harry and Saul and how well, these guys seem pretty happy, like they seem pretty fulfilled that I might be asking myself, is there something to the lifestyle that they're leading that I should be exploring? Whether or not I would actually do it,
1: I would have to think I would at least ask that question. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think many do, whether it's on the trip or after. Um, remember, they're coming with a local organization. Right. So there is a rabbi, a mentor, there's somebody in their local city that they can continue the dialogue with. Right. So me and Harry and Saul go back to our respective cities. And, you know, 20 cities came from, you know, Sydney, Australia and Chile and L.A. and New York and Texas and Florida, like they're not all feeding back into Harry and Saul and Ari. The local organization really makes a huge impact in like if they do have those thoughts or questions or interest, there's somebody there to discuss it with. And to your point, many do. Many do continue to study and learn and, and find out what else is connected there. And I think they're pretty satisfied with that decision because they're taking that, that piece of meaning that they felt in Israel and they're trying to extend it into their lives as much as humanly possible. And again, there are others that, that may say, you know what, that was great and it was amazing. But the, the ones that stay connected and really continue to grow and learn and whatever it is are, are finding a lot of positivity from that. There's no loss. There's just advance and gain, as we talked about.
0: Mm-hmm. So a guy who's lives so all in, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what does all in mean for you in the next two to three years? Where are your focus areas? What are your goals? What, what's going to be headlines if I talk to you two or three years from now?
1: <laughs> well, certainly, this whole thing with the momentum trip, the ability to uh, to speak, to inspire, to connect. I'm interested in expanding that. Obviously, in business, we're continue to try to grow that and try to change the world in long term care. The more families that can get admitted in a respectful, dignified way, um, I'm trying to sh- kind of shift the paradigm forever of like people don't go oh anymore. Now they're like, hey. That, that wasn't so bad. like when they're going into a nursing home, it's like the worst experience ever um, to try to make that just a little bit lighter on them. And then of course, my family is uh, is always growing, changing, evolving. So uh, you know my kids is three girls twenty, eighteen, and fifteen. So in the next two, three years there's a lot of change there um, sure. and uh, and my son is uh, is 12, so his bar mitzvah will be this August. so lots coming up, always lots <laughs> coming up. And now I'm going to ask you finally to go all in on our lightning
0: round to close the interview. You ready? Let's do it. All right. So you mentioned you're a Chicago guy. So what's your favorite kosher restaurant there?
1: Favorite kosher restaurant here. It's either going to be shallots or it's going to be taboon. It's hard to get good Israeli food outside of Israel. It's really good here in Chicago. (laughs) Fair enough. And you earlier in the
0: interview mentioned your Wi-Fi password. So that means you're going to have some Shabbos guests. What can they expect you to serve when they're at your
1: table? oh, my wife makes the most fabulous, fabulous Shabbos food, but she has a very interesting approach, which is her belief is is that the Shabbos menu should be set. She's not the type that like tries all different kinds, whatever it is. So if you're coming to our Shabbos table and you come in you know week one and you come back in week four and you come back in week nine you're often going to get maybe some sprinkling of new stuff but a pretty clear set so you know you're going to get your chicken soup and you know you're going to get your gefilte fish and you know you're going to get your <laughs> your, your, your your uh your roasted chicken there's a familiarity the staples. that that breeds connection actually when it's predictable in that way so my shabbos table is it's pretty standard and clear very nice. So going back to Spartan racing, what's the coolest, or most challenging obstacle you ever faced in one of their races? There's one obstacle. It's called twister that I have never been able to do. Still, I've been doing this for like eight years training to do this one obstacle and I can't do it. It's basically a, a long bar. And on this long bar, it's got these handles that go all the way around the bar. They actually spin around the bar. So as you grab a handle, the whole thing twists down. And then you grab the next one, and it all twists down again. And then it twists down. So with every step like a monkey bar, the whole thing twists and, like, jerks on your arms. It's really, really, really hard. But uh, I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm hoping next year's my my year for it. <laughs> And
0: you mentioned all these races you've done. So where's the most interesting place you got to travel to compete in one of the races? Uh,
1: My favorite race is in Killington, Vermont. We go to the the mountain Killington Ski Resort, and it's 6,600 feet of elevation. They have a march in the middle that's a full mile straight up to the top. So base to peak. It is wildly challenging. I went out and did it in 2017, took me nine hours and 15 minutes. And I tried to get there in 2018 and I twisted my ankle three weeks before. And I tried to get there in 2019 and my wife's grandmother died three days before. And I tried to get there in 2020 and COVID canceled it right before. So I got back there this year, finally, and did it in 625. So I, I really enjoy going there. It's a, it's a fun place to be. Very nice. Last question in the lightning round. So all these momentum trips you've been
0: leading. Is there a part of the trip or a place that you go that usually is the deepest impact for people, that biggest aha moment, the most self-reflection? When does that happen to
1: people? I hate to be predictable with the answer, but it's, it's for sure the Kotel. You walk up to the wall and just get flooded with emotion that you, you didn't even realize you had because, you know, put your hand on that wall and it's like, you know, this lightning that you don't even, you can't even imagine unless you've done it. And it, it sounds hokey. Right, It's like, yeah, you touch the wall and you feel the spirituality flow through you. Right, It sounds hokey. But uh, again, hate to be predictable with the answer, but man, it is super powerful. It really, really is. It's a great answer to close on the Kotel. So you are officially out
0: of the lightning round. And Ari, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos.
1: Thank you for having me. Had a blast, Jeff. You're the man.
0: Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit Tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at Tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.